Welcome to today's podcast. It's our great pleasure today to be joined by Lou Prestia, Senior Product Manager at Pantone. Lou is responsible for graphics and Pantone Live and has a deep knowledge of colour theory and its application within the print workflow. We have a number of questions for Lou today, amongst which are, what's driving the urgent requirement for accurate colour management? Why is colour so misunderstood and how do we bridge the skills gap? We have a number of other questions, but we're also going to talk about Pantone Connect and we're going to move on to talk about what's next for colour as our industry becomes increasingly digital. Lou, welcome to today's podcast. Thanks for having me, Debbie. I'm happy to be here. Thank you so much. Um, Recently, Lou, I watched one of your webinars, which was fantastic and I'd recommend anybody to watch those they were so 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 informative um, and I was really struck um, by some of the topics that you pulled up through that webinar and I just thought that today it'd be really great to go back over um, some of those the title of that webinar being bridging the color gap and designing digitally with physical um, PMS color guides so Lou can I make a start and let's answer the first question So, Lou, can you tell us about your career journey so far and why colour theory inspires you? Certainly, uh, Deb. So my career journey started a long time ago. I interned during my work on my um, printing science degree at National Geographic Society in Washington, D.C. And from National Geographic, I went on to my first real job of my career working for a company called Barney Scan. If anyone in the audience remembers times back then, these times, uh, color production and printing in general was a very proprietary business. So we used SciTech systems and ATEC systems and a bunch of other things that ran on mainframe computers to do production. A lot of print production, of course, was still analog with films and so forth. Uh, and at that time, it was a very expensive business to get into print and to do anything with color in particular. So we saw that change in the 1990s. And as I moved through my career in a couple of different companies in that time, we saw publishing move from the proprietary high-end systems onto the desktop. So it was still expensive, but it was a different order of magnitude. So where a seat on one of those high-end systems might have cost hundreds of thousands of dollars US, when we built a Macintosh workstation in the 1990s, we would still spend and you might find this hard to believe on the order of twenty or 30,000 U.S., we'd wind up with a tool with which we could do the same things. We could do typesetting. We could do color separation. We could capture images from lower-cost scanners, such as the ones that I worked early on. The other thing that changed with the desktop publishing revolution is that color really started to be controlled. And so ICC color management and the ICC itself came into sort of popularity in the 1990s. And one of the key things we did during my time at Adobe was that we put ICC color management into the actual Adobe application. So Photoshop and Illustrator and well, wasn't InDesign at that time. But of course, when InDesign came along, that has also a remarkable ability to use color management. I think the thing that inspires me the most about color theory 
It's just the way that it's changing. So historically, at the very beginning of the timeline that I set, we pretty much thought in CMYK. That's what the printing press used. That's how all the color separations were made from the traditional scanners. As we moved into the 90s and people started to scan their own images, and of course, further forward where we all have digital cameras and now we all have them on our phone, it became an RGB workflow. So that's an interesting development where we moved from one color model to another, still device-dependent color models that got a lot of benefit out of color management, but things changed. And the thing that I think we see changing today is that that's morphing even further towards where we need spectral data. We'll talk a little bit later about this in this podcast in order to do what we really want to do with color in some of the new markets, including digital textile production. Yes, another area that is advancing so quickly, so, so, so important. So, Lou, what do you think is driving the urgent requirement for colour management? Well, it has to do with two things. It has to do with cost savings, because we don't want to have to rework things and reprint things. And it also has to do with the way our time has become sort of more valuable. We've compressed the time in which we need to do things. So many... Many print projects historically were planned for many months in advance, and this goes to fashion and textile too. People planned seasons well in advance because it took a very long time to produce them. Now, this hasn't entirely changed, but getting from the concept to the approval or the approval of the manufacturing stage has become quite compressed. And so that's where if we have accurate color management working, we can get the result we expect let's say in the first try or closer to the first try. Mm -hmm. And it's not really about the ability of the manufacturing process, but more about setting the expectation of the designer and the art director and the print buyer and the other decision makers in the supply chain so that they know what they're going to get rather than going around with a lot of custom corrections, trying to maybe get closer to what they expected. And sometimes we frankly can't get there based on the, on the production process. Absolutely. So much wasted time. It's phenomenal. Why do you think, Lou, colour is so misunderstood? And how can we bridge the skills gap? Well, this sort of reflects on the way the graphic arts industry was at the beginning of my career that I talked about a little earlier. Historically, colour was kind of black magic, right? It was something that Mm -hmm. they didn't want anyone to know too much about because of the incredible amount of investment that people had in these systems. And because of the part of the barrier to entry to getting into this business or one of these businesses was that you didn't have that craftsman's knowledge of color. So I don't mean to disparage the craft knowledge of color, which still has a very important place in today's workflows. But the main reason that people struggle with color management is because they're not educated. Mm-hmm. And there are some fairly good books out there, but in general, people tend to get too complicated too fast. And color management is relatively simple if you just want to understand the basics of it. Of course, we can get very complicated into the color science and so forth. But with a basic understanding of a designer or someone in the production process, just becoming knowledgeable about how it works and doing some little experiments or seeing some experiments with it so that you can believe that it works is a kind of a missing element today, I think. I guess as well, because so many people work freelance these days too. And we have, you know, we don't, 
we don't necessarily have that vertical environment so much, do we? People are working across the globe, files are moving all over the place. It's very hard for people to actually, you know, early on in their careers to, to grow their knowledge, isn't it? Yes, well, it's a different world, right? We don't apprentice. We typically go to university and we study these things. And of course, color management is taught, but without practical application where let's say you have a design project or you have a production project and you have to see it from end to end or participate at one part in that, that workflow, it's very hard to apply the theory. So until you have a file, let's say that you've produced and you're getting a proof of, or you're trying to judge it on your monitor or compare it to some printed printer that you might have in the workspace or today in your home office, you don't really have a, an application where you can say, boy, this is a real problem. How do I solve it? And if you apply color management, of course, people are usually shocked at how easily it's solved if they follow the best practices in implementing color management. Yeah, it's kind of a case of slowing down to become more efficient too, isn't it as well? Taking the time out to learn those new skills. Yes, and to collect the tools. It's not, mm-hmm. uh, you know, it's not a free ride. You need the right tools to do this. So if you're going to move, we talk in the x-ray Pantone business about different levels of maturity in the in the workflow. And we talk about people moving from level two of maturity, which is where you're purely visual and you're adjusting things by eye, to level three of digital or color maturity, where you're starting to measure things. That's a, a big step, both in precision, but there's also an investment there because you can't use your eyes alone at that point. You need to have something like a spectrophotometer in order to make the measurements to move to that next level of sophistication. That's great. It's great answers. Um, Lou, how do we best control color specification to avoid misinterpretation and so that we ensure our design files meet our expectations? There can be so much disappointed disappointment here, which kind of fundamentally still comes back, I guess, to the skills gap. Could you explain that for me? Certainly. So there's two sort of levels of complexity here. And I'll mm-hmm. take the simple one first. If we're working in uh, device-dependent color spaces, meaning RGB and CMYK, then it's all about specifying exactly which RGB or CMYK we're working in. So the typical examples for RGB is that we work in Adobe RGB or we work in sRGB. For CMYK, varies a little bit internationally. You're probably in Europe using something like a FOGR standard, like the PSO coded standard for coded mm-hmm. printing. In the US, this is the Grackle CRPC specification. So there's several of those for different paper types. And it's very important that they use the right one. So even if we drill a little deeper into that, we have Pantone books for all kinds of different applications. But in terms of process CMYK printing, we have two distinct books for printing on coded versus uncoded paper. And designers get surprised all the time by the result they get because they're using these colors. They're either entering them manually from the book or using our Connect technology to to have them directly available in the Adobe Creative Cloud. But if they don't have the right working space set up in their Illustrator, their Photoshop, their InDesign, then the results are not what's expected. So that's the simple level of it. Yeah, sorry. You're absolutely right. And that's what happens, you know, as it starts to move down the print route too. You know, you you get something on screen, but as you say, you've not calibrated everything and you've not, quite often people don't understand um, that there are, 
what their printer needs and what um, quality they need and what setup they need. So when it comes back, people are unhappy. But if everyone collaborates and works together, um, we can have a happy journey with colour. So that's interesting what you said, Debbie, because there's another piece to it here, which is the idea of soft proofing. Soft proofing is that I can see on my monitor what I'm going to ultimately get in the production process. There's two challenges with soft proofing. The first one is it requires more than people think. So I need a monitor that's capable of displaying the gamut that I want to render and has the right electronics for smoothly rendering colors and grays. It also means that I need a colorimeter or a spectrophotometer to measure that screen and make a profile for it, which I think most people understand. Where that understanding often falls short is that after I've profiled my monitor, the display profile is going to be expecting D50 white point typically, or maybe D65 for some textile applications. And that means if I want to take a production piece or a strike or a strike off and compare it to my screen and see that it's really working, I actually need a light booth next to that screen. So the investment and the complexity for getting soft proofing to work is more than people often initially think. The other important thing, as I was saying earlier about RGB, is when we use RGB, even if it's very carefully specified sRGB, that's almost always going to get compressed into the production gamut. There's no production gamut today that can really render all the colors in RGB. So when that compression happens, we're going to see something other than what we expected on our screen, even if it's very caref carefully calibrated. So that means that the proof setup, as it's known in the Adobe Creative Cloud, is a critical piece. I need to set up the proof setup to have a profile for the device that I'm ultimately going to produce the product on so that my screen can show me, honestly, the disappointing result that I'm going to get. Mm -hmm. Another way to specify color that can make it more successful in the manufacturing phase, certainly, and also more successful for previewing it, is to move to a spot color workflow. So if you look at textile workflow in, in particular, textile workflow has long been done in spot color only, right? And combinations of those mm -hmm. colors that we're going to mix up and use on the conventional screen press or the other manufacturing process. It seems complicated to digital designers who are used to working in RGB and CMYK to suddenly make a file that has 12 spot colors that interact, but it's actually for some purposes, a much more reliable way to specify the colors. This comes into play in particular when I want to do multi-illuminant matching, such as we require in the textile workflows. If I use a named color workflow, where instead of telling you an RGB or a CMYK value and the profile that goes with that, instead telling you the name of the color in the Pantone guide, and it could be a paper Pantone guide or one of our FHI textile guides, that's a much more reliable way to either formulate that color in terms of a dye or an ink or to render it on a digital machine, but know the appearance values, the LED values that I'm trying to, to get to. So it's about creating standards, really. Creating standards and, and, and leveraging them across the supply chain. So you kind of have to have the conversation from the beginning to the end or more Precisely, it goes from the end to the beginning about yep. what's possible and what do we want specified and what are we going to be most successful with down on the manufacturing floor. And then 
moving that up through the whole design process, ultimately back to the designer so they can use the right tools in the first place and set the expectations, both their own in terms of the visual design and their satisfaction with it, but also their art director and other decision makers that might be involved there. Absolutely. And it's never been, as you said earlier, it's never been more important to produce and manufacture at such great speed to have all of that preset. Very, yes, very really, if you, if, if you have this conversation in the beginning, it not only results in a lot more satisfaction throughout the supply chain, but it also saves an enormous amount of time and rework and cost. It does. Massive amount of waste. Lou, where, where is colour theory today and why do you think that the application of cloud technologies can help to bridge the color management gap? Well, the cloud technologies are really about accessibility. So for instance, in our Pantone libraries, we have master values in the Pantone library, which tells you what the color should look like. Mm-hmm. And generally the one that people access and know what to do with or can use in the creative cloud, if they want to do this, some kind of, spot color matching, as I was talking about a minute ago, is they can access the LAB values. LAB values are relatively simple. There's three values per color. They tell you exactly what that color should look like in the human eye. And if you can make a print that has those LAB values or produce in whatever your production process is, then you're going to have a successful match. However, you're only going to have a successful match in one illuminate. Go back to what I said a few minutes ago about soft proofing. You set up this whole thing, your screen is very accurate, but it doesn't look like the produced piece or the sample unless you have a light booth to put it in. Mm -hmm. So a much more sophisticated way to address this and the way to address what we've been doing with conventional textile for a long time in the dye and the ink uh, blending process is to have multi-illuminate matching where your color match is not just in D50, but in D65 and TL84 and cool-wave fluorescent and a bunch of other things. The only way we can do that digitally is to have spectral definitions of the color. So So that's a lot of information to carry around in your fan book or whatever tool you might use at your desktop, or even to have in a spreadsheet somewhere. That's something that you really need a technology like cloud delivery so that you have that spectral definition where you need it in the manufacturing process. That starts with design. If I want to preview the color in three different illuminants, I'm going to need the spectral definition of that color. And it goes all the way through to production. Since when they produce the piece, we want it to match in multiple illuminants. They'll need the spectral definition to find the right combination of colorants or pigments or dyes that they're going to use to produce the piece to make it match in those multiple illuminants. Luke, could you just explain spectral data for listeners? Certainly. So when we measure something with a spectrophotometer, the values you usually see come out are LAB, their appearance values for one particular lighting or one illuminant. What the spectrophotometer actually measures is what we call the spectral distribution curve, is one way to express it. It measures typically 32 values per color. Those 32 values tell me how much energy that color has at 32 different wavelengths across the visual spectrum that we can see. So from about 480 to about 720 nanometers is the range of colors the human eye can see. If I measure and record the amount of energy the color has all across the visual spectrum, then 
technically I can make what's called an invariant match. So if I took a color that you specified that you wanted, let's say in your Pantone guide, mm -hmm. and I could ultimately in my manufacturing process match not just the lab values, but match the actual spectral power distribution, the spectral measurement of that original color that you specified and expected, then we would have what's called an invariant match, which means the illuminant doesn't matter. It matches in all illuminants. Otherwise, we're working with what's called metamerism, which means mm -hmm. colors can match in one light and not another. And that's when we start to not use the whole spectral power distribution, but instead use a more functional and quickly calculated and easy to understand uh, tristimulus model such as LAB. We convert the spectral data to LAB. Now we have a simpler definition but it doesn't solve the metamerism problem. It matches in one light, which is great in your light booth. You take it out of the light booth or you move it into some other application, for instance, for textiles, some other lighting, and you no longer have a color match. You're right. And metamerism is a, is a huge problem in textile. And I, I think that must be, you know, at least 70% of the problems are due to light, ref, light reflectancy and um, and the the fact that colors just don't look right when they either hit the store um, or they're, they're in the interior, they don't match the, the specified co coordinates. Um, it's, it's a huge, huge problem. Lou, how far do you think we are away then from being able to implement spectral data? Well, the spectral data is there. Of course, we have that also in our Pantone software and Pantone Live has spectral color definitions for spectral color data for all the colors. It really is down to the applications to implement it. So, I can't use spectral data in Creative Cloud applications, which is a piece of it for the designer. But more importantly, even if the designer had access to that, there's no manufacturing technology except for conventional dyes and ink mixing that can really utilize that data in a meaningful way. So if mm -hmm. I have a digital production system, and we see, of course, more and more of all kinds of productions being done digitally, the digital front ends or the rips that sit in front of these systems generally... Uh, are not processing spectral data today and not capable of making a yeah. spectral match on the the physical product they're producing. So do you think we are years away from, again, that kind of whole convergence of different technologies together so that we can start to use it? Uh, that's a hard question. I think that the people that need to be aware of this problem are aware of it. We have kind of a little bit of space or gap in our technology development, I think, courtesy of the Corona times. But mm -hmm. I think that probably in the next two to three years, you'll start to see this to become important because manufacturers that want to move to digital processes for reasons of cost and time and also the ability to do shorter production runs are going to get this requirement from their customers. So it's very typical today that brands are extremely precise in their specification and their requirements for something that's manufactured conventionally, say on mm -hmm. rotary screen or with dyes. And the specification is typically a lot looser when they have to do something quickly or for some other reason, for some reason of detail rendering or other things that we have to use a digital process. Suddenly the color matching expectation is much lower. And I think that that's probably not going to be the case over time. So I estimate in the next two to three years as more manufacturers adopt digital, that the their customers and the whole front end of this process are going to demand better, yep. tighter matching. And that's going to require that we move to some of these spectral workflows.
Yeah, we also have that huge issue of looking at different screens and ordering something and it arrives and it's not the right shade as well, don't we? And I, I guess spectral data, um, along with um, software innovations, um, will be able to alleviate some of that moving forward. Yeah, that's a, a difficult question that I don't have the golden answer for. It's very complicated and expensive to profile monitors and monitors don't seem to be manufactured in any exacting matching way. So that's yeah. still one to be solved. Your, your browser is typically doing color management. It's typically recognizing data and doing color management to the screen. But if you don't have a calibrated and profiled screen, and if you don't look at the product you bought in the D50 light that you've probably calibrated your monitor for, you're not going to see a match. Yeah, absolutely. It's not apples. It's not apples and apples, is it at all? Right. Yeah. Um, Lou, just, just moving on. Um, can you quickly explain the Pantone Bridge Guide and why designers really, really should be using it as such an important connective physical piece into, into the whole world of color, I guess? Sure. So the Bridge Guide gives a print designer a tool to see the way a spot color will render if it's printed with CMYK. So we like people to use the Formula Guide. And as I said at the beginning of our conversation, it's really a fantastic tool because our formula guide has a huge range of colors. This is true mm -hmm. of the textiles guides too. They have a huge gamut, massive amount of colors you can choose from, some very bright, saturated choices in there. However, in the print manufacturing process, when we get down to printing, if we're going to print on a conventional press, and especially offset lith lithographic press, it's relatively unusual that we will mix a spot color ink and use it on that press because uh -huh. of the additional time and cost and need to make another plate. Unless I'm printing for a brand and I really need to match brand colors, chances are I'm going to convert a spot color into CMYK so that I can print it with the four color units that I always have to set up to run my process color work. When I do that, the Pantone color appearance is going to shift. Mm -hmm. Sometimes a little, sometimes a lot but especially those very bright saturated colors are going to be out of gamut for CMYK printing. And so they're going to get compressed. Sort of what I, what I talked about earlier with being disappointed. If you have an RGB workflow, the manufacturing process can't possibly match all those colors. Well, the CMYK printing process can't match all our formula guide colors. So what the bridge guide gives you is it gives you a page that's split in two. On the left side, you see the spot color appearance, the one that you had hoped to get from the formula guide. And on the right side, you see the closest we can get in CMYK. And it's a very useful tool, number one, to set your expectation, whether you're on the designer or the production side or anywhere in the, the workflow, to say, oh, I wanted this, but this is all I'm going to get on the right side. And then the other way, reason it's an important tool is because we now manufacture those books to a strict uh, specification. So we do the CMYK printing to an industry reference called CRP6, for the mm -hmm. coded or CRPC3 for the uncoded, which means that if you're a designer and you take those values, either type them in out of the book or load them in out of Pantone Connect, if you're using that in your as a as an extension to your Adobe Creative Cloud, you will get that appearance when you make the proof and on press. If you use the tint values we give you, they now work. Historically, process printing wasn't very tightly controlled or tightly specified, especially in the United States. So those values would 
maybe not result in the appearance you expected if you used them and you'd go through a lot of custom correction with the print shop or the pre-press house getting to the color that the designer or the design customer expected. Thank you, Lou. That's a really great explanation. Um, one of the things that actually came to light recently for me as well was, um, I'm not sure you, I think you may have shown it in your webinar actually, was how often you should replace your books because they become such familiar parts of your desk, don't they? Um, and you have to kind of track back and think, hang on, how old, how old is that, that guy's? Because they they do perish over time, don't they? They with light and just getting grubby because we're flicking through them all the time. How often would you recommend that designers actually change those books? We recommend that you change you exchange your guide every twelve to eighteen months. Mm-hmm. The colors do fade. The colors also get messed up, as you said, as the book gets used, depending on the environment. Some I've seen some pretty damaged books. But the other thing that happens besides fading is that the colors start to yellow. So some uh-huh. of the inks that we use oxidize, and that ca- turns causes the colors to shift in hue. So it's hard to measure this, um, but we recommend that you change it every 12 to 18 months so that you have one that's fresher. Not only is it less faded, but as we continue to improve our production processes, which we're in a state of constant improvement within our Pantone business, uh, the books are getting better. So we're getting closer and closer to the digital standards with more and more of the colors in the book. So it's a good idea to replace it, number one, because it damages and and fades, but number two, because the newer the book, generally the closer the color matches are going to be. And I should want to tell the audience, the guides aren't perfect. It's called a guide because you use it as a guide to the color. It's not an invariant reference to that color. It's not an exact zero delta E match. But we do have a very tight tolerance that we manufacture to, and we try to keep the colors within that. I should also tell you that if you really want to see a Pantone color that is guaranteed below 2 Delta E2000, or as close as you would expect to get it in any kind of manufacturing process, in the United States, we do now offer, we'll be relaunching in April, our on-demand service, where you can order chips that we produce digitally on inkjet devices. And those chips are always within... 2 Delta E, and we offer a variety of sizes, and we offer stickers, and we also offer all the Pantone live colors rendered on various substrates through that on-demand service. And we hope to expand that to the rest of the world probably later this year. Wow, that's amazing. It's a really quick service if I remember as well. We typically turn around in, in two to three days. We, we aim for a one-day yeah. turnaround. We give ourselves a little leeway there in case our, our operation gets very busy. That's um, fantastic. Moving then from the physical to the digital, um, Lou, could you tell us about Pantone Connect? Could you perhaps just walk us through the technology and tell us how designers can best utilize it to consolidate color management, again, across the supply chain? Certainly. So I've, I've mentioned Connect a couple of times in this podcast, and I, it's probably only fair that I come around to a definition of it. So Connect is our new digital technology, Connect is a platform that includes several components. So the first one is naturally a web portal where you can work with colors. You can identify Pantone colors, choose Pantone colors, and then find other Pantone colors that might work with that color in terms of harmonies and other kinds of tools that we give you for matching and comparing colors. Another important thing about the web portal is that we have some, in our variations tools, we have the way to show you colorblind tests. So you can 
pick a palette that if you're going to produce something for a public space, will work even for people that might be deficient in their ability to view color. The second piece of Connect beyond the web portal is a mobile app that runs on your phone. This is a fantastic tool for inspiration because if you're out in the real world or maybe traveling somewhere, you probably don't have your Pantone guide with you. If you see a color you want to use to get out the guide and figure out what the right Pantone number for that is. With the mobile app, I can extract colors from a photograph, either one that I take on my phone or one that I have in my saved on my phone. And I can also use a, an optional piece we sell called the Pantone color card. These cost about $15 US. That card is essentially like a little profiling target. It has a hole in the middle of it. I put it on the color that I want. I bring up the Connect application and I capture it. And the Pantone Connect application uses the color card to calibrate the image and identify the color that's at the center. It's in that open hole in the middle of the card. Immediately tells me the Pantone uh, number in several different libraries. If I want to use, let's say, Bridge versus the Formula Guide or other libraries, and then I can bring that into a palette. The third piece of the Connect platform is an extension for the Creative Cloud, because ultimately we're going to want to use these colors in design. So after I capture some colors on my phone, maybe I move them through the web portal to find some harmonies and so forth, and I can do these things on my phone too, but I find it a little more efficient to sit at my computer and do it on the, the portal once I've captured them. The next thing I need to do is move them into the Creative Cloud. And so I can do that one of two ways. If I'm working the old way, I can export a um, Adobe Color Library, and I mm -hmm. can import that to the same way we've loaded color books into the Creative Cloud applications for many years. But what's much better is if I get the extension for Creative Cloud, now I have an actual Pantone Connect palette within Illustrator in Photoshop and InDesign. Once I log into that, all the palettes that I've saved, everything that I've ever created is available to me right there. So I don't have to import it into three different applications that I might use in my workflow. I can actually just pick it directly off the Pantone palette. And I can certainly move it into the swatches if I choose to, or if I use it, it'll automatically move into the swatches in something like Illustrator, but it gives me access to use those colors I've captured. So in sort of summary, Pantone Connect is a cross-technology product that lets me capture and use colors digitally all the way from concept or ideation through the production process where I need to use them in Creative Cloud. And I encourage everyone in the audience to try this. This is a commercial product. We, for the beginning of the Corona times, we made the product no charge. So you can register and try it for free at Pantone.com right now, or if you Google Pantone Connect. Um, please be aware that this is a commercial product, and we will begin charging for it probably fairly soon. So it won't be free forever, but right now you can get it. You can get the extension. It's an order of magnitude easier to use your colors in the Creative Cloud using Connect versus having to use the Color Manager to get libraries from Pantone and load them and then pick them through all those complicated menus in the Creative Cloud palettes. 
That's a great explanation, Lou. Thank you so much. And I guess, you know, for designers listening to that just gives you absolute ultimate portability, doesn't it? Because it's wherever you are, it's saved, it's in the cloud. Your your whole colour library is there and accessed for you. So, you know, you're moving around, as you say, you get inspiration, you use your colour chip, you take it, up it goes into your computer. And wherever you are, you're connected and can then therefore share that throughout your entire supply chain too. It's fantastic. Exactly. And today where all our designers are working at home, you might have a design team where you want to put together, you know, next season's palette or a palette for a particular project. You can all go out at the same time and capture some inspiration colors using your mobile app, and then you can share them with each other. So once you're logged in, you can share it with other users of Connect, and then you can all see the whole collection you've put together and sit down and have a decision-making process to figure out which, which ones are going to go into your seasonal palette. That's great. You can put the scissors away now, then can't we? <laughs> yes, for you years, can. Yeah, for years I've been like chopping little squares off things my entire life and storing them and saving them and sticking them on boards. But to make, make the whole thing digital is fantastic, really. Is, yes, and, we, and we still let you print the board. So one of the Connect functions is to print your palette card so you can show it to all your decision makers in the supply chain. It's still important, but you won't have to create yes. it by hand. You can create it almost instantly by saying make palette card in the connect tool. Fantastic innovations, aren't they? And we get, we get so many so quickly these days, we don't necessarily have time to appreciate the functionality of all of this incredible software. Um, but I think that's a, that's a really key one for the design industry. It really is. Um, Lou, what's next? The future. What do you think is next for colour? You know, our, our industry is just becoming, as I've just said, increasingly digital by the second what's on your wish list and and the second part of that question was how does the print industry move to standardize color well there's three pieces i think to to what's next or what might be on my wish list i think the first thing and the thing that would probably benefit everyone in the supply chain the most is for everyone in the supply chain to become educated about color management to see uh-huh. some actual examples of it working and to believe in it, to understand that it does work and that if we use these tools, it will work. So that's yeah. the biggest barrier to adoption of color management and standardization that I see today is we have people from all different sort of eras that have come into the business all different times. And it's not specifically the people that have been in it longer or shorter, but they don't all equally understand color management and they certainly don't all have equal amount of faith in the fact that it works technologically. Mm -hmm. So the first thing is that education. We need to find a way to all get to a a basic knowledge. You don't need to be an expert and understand that if we follow the best practices, it works. You need to be aware as you do that, that there's lots of pitfalls. So there's, if we don't follow the best practices, there's lots of ways we can say, well, I know I should do it this way, but I'm going to do it this other way that I used to do it. Suddenly color management doesn't work and you say, oh, that whole thing's broken. I'm not going to believe it. So that's the first piece. The second piece, as I said, is we need to move to a more sophisticated use of color measurements, which is the spectral piece that we talked about. Mm -hmm. And then the third piece of it is that we really need to drive more innovation and bring to the market more innovation on the side of digital production the actual digital creation of manufactured pieces. This has come a very long way in the last 20 years, but it frankly has a lot longer to go. And 
the example I gave earlier is the one that I always think back to where, you know, I hear a brand tell me about how precise they are about specifying their color when it's manufactured conventionally and how disappointed but sort of accepting they are about the fact that it's not going to match the same when they manufacture it digitally. We absolutely have to end that differentiation so that you can't tell the difference about if I do a short run digital or a longer run conventionally or of course, as we see happening in the in the conventional print world, everything's moving to being digitally printed on inkjet presses. So pretty soon there'll Absolutely. be no differentiation there. Lou, do you think that in order to achieve all of that, there has to be much more collaboration and transparency within our industries? Certainly collaboration is a key and transparency mm-hmm. is also a key. We have, if you look at the conventional print on paper world, we do have different sets of standards in the United States and in Europe. And kind of, if we look to Asia, there some companies are adopting one or the other. So we haven't had a great degree of standardization. We've had a great degree of standardization, but not globally. So I think going forward, some global standardization would benefit us all. It would mean that we all could use the same profiles, let's say for our working spaces in the creative cloud, for example, And then the manufacturing process could be consistent from one place to another, from one country to another, so that we could ultimately function more as a global color community. Historically, it wasn't as important because we typically printed and manufactured things in one area and used them in one area. But with the way things are created and produced and distributed uh, on the Internet, that's all changed now. So moving to global standards, I think, could be a, a big step forward and certainly having agreement and adoption and transparency about that, it would be essential to to the success. Thank you, Lee. Thank you so much for joining us today. It's been an absolute pleasure talking to you. Thank you so much for sharing both your own career journey and your Pantone journey here too. Um, and I'm sure that collectively together, all of us um, over the over the next few years are going to see some incredible innovations um, and it'll be a joy to watch Pantone play a huge part in all of that progress. Lou, thank you so much. I'll make sure that um, all the connections are in the show notes for anybody that's listening. Um, and that all that remains is to say thank you again, Lou. It's been fab. Thank you very much, Debbie. Thanks again for having me. It was a pleasure to be here. Uh-huh.